the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The John Steigerwald Show, sponsored by Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand the yellow van. Portions of today's program may be pre recorded. They're going to try again. Yep, here's what Congressman Thomas Massey tweeted today. Quote, I have introduced a bill to terminate the Department of Education. There is no constitutional authority for this federal bureaucracy to exist. The Republicans have been talking a good game on this for a long time, and there are eight Republican co-sponsors this time around. I believe Massey had a proposal back in 2017, but there are eight sponsors of this one, co-sponsors. So why did anybody think having the federal government involved in education was a good good idea anyway? It's hard enough to get control of what happens to your kids in the local school. And the FBI and the Justice Department, as you may have noticed, uh, recently were trying to criminalize parents who were questioning school boards. And the school choice movement seems to be gaining some momentum, but it still doesn't seem to be important enough to Republicans. They talk about it. They don't seem to do much about it. And with all the insanity going on in, in public schools now, you would think it would be a good, as good as any issue for them, but uh, again, it just doesn't seem like they push it hard enough. Uh, and in Baltimore, there are 23 high schools, and you know how many students they have who are proficient in math? None. Not one. But somehow, these kids are walking out with a diploma. Now, how does that work? Now, bring that up to a Democrat, and you'll be told that it's because not enough money has been invested in the district. The numbers are there that show that schools are much worse now than they were when the Department of Education was created in 1980. And what makes this a tough issue for Republicans is that the media and the Democrats, I know, same thing, will portray anybody who opposes the Department of Education as being someone who just, you know, doesn't care about education, which is ridiculous. Unfortunately, there are enough stupid voters out there who will believe that anyone opposed to the federal government being involved in education must just, must just be opposed to education. This doesn't get any dumber than that. If there were some reason to believe that the federal government uh, could do a better job in places like Baltimore, then its involvement, I guess, would make some sense. But it has to change at the local level, and the federal bureaucracy just gets in the way every time someone proposals, uh, proposes, I should say, uh, school choice or, or some other major change. The teachers' unions also get in the way, of course. So let's see if this latest try by the Republicans goes anywhere. I would not bet on it. And in our second half hour today, we're going to talk to someone from the Heritage Foundation. The, the Heritage Foundation has a plan to eliminate the Department of Education. We'll talk about that. But when we come back, what is going on in East Palestine, Ohio? It's only 50 miles from here, and it's a major environmental disaster. And it doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot of coverage around here, not getting the coverage it deserves. Stick around. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with MyPillow is launching MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my exclusive listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one, get one free with promo code STAG. MyPillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square to get the buy one, get one free offer. Just when you thought MyPillow couldn't get any better, MyPillow 2.0 gives you the best pillow ever. Enter promo code STAG or call 800-716-8087 to get your MyPillow 2.0s now. My son, Finn, was born with congenital heart disease. He ended up spending about the first eight months of his life in the hospital. 
During that time, he endured 10 surgeries, including an open-heart surgery. Starlight Children's Foundation has played an important role in my family's life. For five weeks when he was a baby, Finn lived in a Starlight Hero wagon. You could not understand the pure joy of having him go from a hospital bed into his favorite red wagon. Starlight doesn't just give items that hospitalized kids can use to keep themselves happy, but also memories, moments, and experiences which are so needed in times like these. They allow sick kids to just be kids for a little while. The support that Starlight provides to families like mine is an integral part to creating happiness at a time when there's very little to be found. Learn more about how Starlight Children's Foundation brightens the lives of sick kids by visiting starlight.org today. Dennis Prager here. Sue and I mean it. Dogs are part of our family. We love Otto and Snoopy so much, there's nothing quite like their loyal companionship. So we provide them with rough greens. In fact, I just talked to my wife about it because we want them to be healthy and we want them to be with us as long as possible. That's true. I know Sebastian Gorka feels the same way. The Pragers and I couldn't agree more. Our pups, Kelly and Alea, rely on us to provide what's best for them. A naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black has packed rough greens full of vitamins minerals, digestive enzymes, omega oils, and more that supplement their food in a way that has shown us great results. Trying out Rough Greens is an easy yes, recommended by me, Dr. G. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black here, and I'm so proud that the Pragers and Sebastian Gorka have entrusted their dog's health to Rough Greens. I'm so confident that Rough Greens can help your dog. I'm offering you a free Jumpstart trial bag. Just cover the shipping. Yes, your dog's food is dead food, but you can bring it back to life with Rough Greens. Go to RUFFGreens.com. Did you know that the average price of a used car is up over 40% from just a year ago? The cost of living has gone up, and the cost for auto repairs is rising as well. The car you have needs to last you longer than ever. So if your vehicle has less than 150,000 miles with an auto warranty about to expire or with no warranty coverage at all, you need to call CarShield at 800-523-8667. We've just announced a low-cost month-to-month vehicle service plan to help save thousands of dollars on out-of-pocket expenses for future auto repairs. While the cost for new and used cars continue to go up, CarShield offers protection plans at an all-time low. Drivers who activate their plan today will also receive 24-7 coast-to-coast roadside assistance, courtesy towing and emergency tire, battery, and key lockout service. Call 800-523-8667 today to save 20% on your plan. That's 800-523-8667. Keep your car protected. Call 800-523-8667. Again, 800-523-8667. The John Steigerwall Show. AM 1250, The Answer. What's going on in East Palestine? And we're talking about Palestine, not Stein. And it's not the Middle East. It's Ohio, and it's only 50 miles from here. You've probably heard about the train derailment back uh, a couple about what, ten days ago or so, uh, but we have, heard, have we heard enough about it? That's the question. Michael Patrick Leahy is the owner and editor in chief of the Ohio Star, and he joins us now. Michael, thanks for coming on. It is great to be with you, John. And you know, Governor Dewine just finished a press conference about an hour ago. Yeah, where he he did address some of the issues, uh, some of the questions about the. Uh, the, the uh, train derailment and the release of vinyl chloride that was associated with that. The train has, you know, you know this is 50 miles northwest of you in Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and you, uh, congratulations, you got it right, East Palestine. Right. Not Palestine. I've driven through there many uh, times on my way to college in Canton, Ohio, so I, I like that little town. Yeah, it's a nice little town, 5,000 people or yeah. so. Um and so we have some more information from the press conference. So the derailment took place on February 3rd, uh, a huge, huge uh, train, lots of hazardous materials, including vinyl chloride. That happens on February 3rd. Then uh, on the morning of February 6th, um, there was a controlled burn of five of the uh, uh, train carriages that contained vinyl chloride. Now, we didn't know who made that decision, nor who had the legal authority for it. And we got some more information from the governor uh, today at the Ohio Star just about half an hour before his press conference. Um, They told us that uh, um, he consulted with uh, the governor of Pennsylvania, Governor Shapiro, as well as federal agencies and state agencies, and collectively they determined 
um, that um, there was a risk of those the vinyl chloride in those five uh, train carriages of exploding. And uh, the way they framed it, the choice was either a controlled burn uh, that afternoon or the possibility of uh, an explosion that would send metal shards up into the air and down at the ground uh, for a circumference of about a mile. That's how they framed it. And uh, it seems like uh, those the, the materials that were being transported are kind of dangerous and makes you what? wonder um, what kind of equipment are they using to transport it and, and were they... Were they in the proper containers, or do the containers that they consider proper, uh, do they actually, are they good enough to prevent what, ha- obviously they're not, because it, it happened, but what's, what's, the, what's, the, um, what's the discussion about how they were being transported and whether, who was it, um, I forget the... Uh, the uh, Southern Railway. Yeah, Southern Railway. Yeah, yeah, how much at fault are they or, at this point? Are they blaming them at all? They're totally, uh, the Governor DeWine is totally pointing the finger for any uh, problems, uh, health problems or economic problems related to this derailment, pointing to Southern Railway. But he's also asserting that uh, they were uh, transported legally mm-hmm. uh, and that, uh, but he said that these uh, hazardous materials uh, should require a special approval before moving through uh, through his state, and so he's he's calling for federal legislation on that. I want to go back though. Um, there have been an awful lot of reports uh, of uh, potential negative health issues here. Yeah, a uh, lots of verbal reports that uh, people are having difficulty uh, with their eyes. People are having headaches uh, in that area, and of course, vinyl chloride. When you burn it, uh, it turns into hydrochloric acid and phosgene, which is basically a version of uh, nerve gas that was used in World War One. And that's not nice. Yeah. Yeah. So so in addition, um, the many there are reports, the Ohio EPA is reporting that contaminants uh, have now gone through the water supply as far south as the Ohio River. Now, the uh, health officials from Ohio at the press conference this afternoon they kind of downplayed uh, the health issues. They said we've done we've monitored air quality. It's not that bad. Uh, we don't think that the there will be long term effects uh, uh, of the water supply issues. However, I should point out that you know vinyl chloride is a, a is a known carcinogen, and we don't know what the long term effects would be of this. So a lot of people still remained concerned about it. Of course, you see on on social media lots of reports of dead fish all over the place there, but. That's social media. It's not a, you know, a, a, a study from an environmental group or from a state agency. I want to go back, though, to the decision to make the controlled burn. That's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Governor DeWine has inched towards the issue of responsibility for making that decision. He couched it at the press conference, however, in the, in the, uh, the term of uh, the plural we made the decision. Mm-hmm. However, uh, and we monitored this press conference and our great reporter, Hannah Poling has a story that's going to be published momentarily to describe this at the Ohio star, the Ohio star.com. Um, but he never established the legal authority by which the collective. We, which was part made that decision to do the control burned. And from what we can tell, of uh, the we involved, he did, he did consult with your governor, Governor Shapiro, uh, and other federal and state agencies. And then we, the collective we, which included Governor DeWine, made the decision for the controlled burn. Frankly, I don't think Governor Shapiro had any authority in Ohio, although the plume was likely to have an impact on you in Pittsburgh and others in Pennsylvania. Right. Um, and I don't, you know, I, the, the governor assumed the authority, it appears to me, to make that decision. Um, I think it's a kind of decision, however, that would have required federal signed-off approval from the EPA. He didn't indicate that he had such approval. So we'll see how that all plays out. Um, would he have had time to do all that? How, quick did he, how, how quickly did the decision have to be made? Well, that's a very good question. He did say that the Ohio National Guard 
had done some modeling of what would happen with the plume. Um, but remember now, the the accident, uh, the derailment occurred on February 3rd. Mm-hmm. The controlled burn uh, was not executed until three days later on February 6th. So um, he also kind of is interesting. He said, yeah, I've been talking with uh, President Biden about this. President Biden you know, said, I'll give you any help you want. And Governor DeWine said, I'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It would seem to me that the, that, the, that the governor may be in a little bit of a tricky spot here because uh, it would seem to me that these kinds of decisions for a controlled burn, there, there, there needs to be, there is a federal authority on it. And it was not clear at all that he secured that federal authority to do this. Although, as, and he, he took it as a governor. Now, that may be the right thing to do, but uh, I thought it was curious the way he framed it. Yeah, and, and I, I don't envy him being in that position of uh, doing what he did, knowing that it was going to create major problems uh, when they decide to do the burn. But you have to be, I guess, 100 percent convinced that if you don't do that, you're going to get an explosion and make things worse, or you better be pretty convinced that that's going to happen in order to make that decision. Well, he made that case vigorously at the press conference. Yeah. Um, but I think there, you know, I, I, I think if, if, if I were an attorney representing a family living in East Palestine, um, I would press hard to see what that legal authority was for that controlled burn. Yeah, and, and that's going to be that's going to be determined over time. But also over time, uh, we could be finding people with because, uh, from what I understand, breathing in these chemicals that are out there uh, are really good for getting brain cancer, liver cancer, other kinds of cancer. And you're not going to know the effects of it for might be years and years, and uh, that and the people are going to be dead. That, John, is an excellent point, and it's one that, uh, you know, if you live in that area, the long-term effects of this controlled burn, uh, uh, the, the, those would be questions you would want to know. Right. Uh, I do think there is a certain, there's a risk factor, and it's a known carcinogen, and uh, so the, his health officials were downplaying the health effects of this, looking at the immediate consequences, oh, yeah, taking yeah, air yeah. samples, looking at water supplies. But I think you're exactly right, John. This is of, of serious concern for potential long-term health consequences when a carcinogen like this uh, is basically released into the air in a controlled burn based upon what it looks like to be the authority taken by Governor DeWine and in there, this instance. Yeah, and there were, we've had, we had people um, dying of or still dealing with cancer from having gone into the uh, towers when the when the planes hit on on nine eleven, and it wasn't and ten years later they were still coming forward and saying, they're, whatever they're suffering from now was a direct result of breathing in something that was in the air days weeks after uh, the yes. the planes hit. I think that's a, a concern that if I lived in East Palestine I would have right now, and it's a concern that I think. The governor uh, uh, probably should have addressed in great detail before he authorized this control burn. I mean, he's suggesting that if we didn't do the control burn that afternoon on the 6th, we faced an immediate problem of a potential explosion with metal shards going up into the air and coming down one mile from it. Uh, Perhaps that's so. I don't know. Right. But I think that there was insufficient uh, he, he did not reveal uh, the details. Uh, should have revealed more details about the legal authority that he that he used uh, uh, in in ordering this controlled burn. We're talking to Michael Patrick Leahy, the owner and editor in chief of the Ohio Star, about what happened up there in East Palestine, Ohio. You know, it's a nice little town. And the train runs through there, and you hear the train whistle, and it's you know, uh, 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 it's the it's Americana, you know. It's America. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little town in in uh, in the United States that just a perfect little town. Something you'd see in Plasticville with your with your um, toy train, you know, when you were a kid. But um, and those people see and hear those trains go by all the time. What about 
the possibility of doing some investigation into why those kinds of chemicals would even be allowed to be transported anywhere close to where lots of people live? Well, I think that is the kind of thing that Governor DeWine was suggesting, well, was stating in his press conference. I mean, he, he said these kinds of materials should be at a higher level of hazardous material classification. And we should have been notified when uh, the law should be that when these kinds of materials are transported by rail, we should be notified. I think that would be his position. Change the law. Well, I mean, that's fine going forward. But right now, uh, if you are a resident of East Palestine, you're going to think, hmm, have I been exposed to a potential carcinogen by this controlled burn decision and by the accident that happened on February 3rd? And and the decision to allow the stuff to be transported anyway, um, what good does a law do uh, that that you notify people that this stuff is being transported? What do, if I live in East Palestine? What do I got to do? Get out of town until it makes so sure it gets I, through I safely? If I can, yeah. Let me make this point though. I think that that uh, as the governor put it, um, the northern uh, uh, the, the 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 Norfolk Southern Railway um, was complying with the law in how they transported this uh, yeah, these yeah, materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his point. Yeah. Uh, but has this story gotten anywhere near the coverage it deserves, Michael, from the national media I'm talking about? It didn't I get much coverage so. here locally in the beginning. I, I don't think it's gotten the kind of coverage it deserves. Uh, and part of it is, you know, if you look in the, the conservative social media, you know, this is being portrayed as a potential environmental disaster. Right. If you listen to the press conference today, um, the health concerns were absolutely downplayed. And they only emphasize the short term. Uh, and I think that the national media uh, is going to uh, really follow that lead and downplay of, of Governor DeWine and, and downplay the potential health uh, consequences here. But frankly, <laughs> I'd be very concerned about the long term yeah. health consequences. Where's Pete Buttigieg? He didn't even mention well, it yesterday. He, he sent out some, you know, tweets like, uh, we need to get a full investigation of this thing late yeah, yesterday. Thanks, so, Pete. You know. yeah. But, but if, if I'm in Pittsburgh also, I'm thinking, well, did, how much did the plume uh, uh, come in my way? And, you know, did, was I exposed to any long-term carcinogens because of this plume from the controlled burn and from on February 6th and from the, the fires on February 3rd? That would be a concern. That would be a real concern to me. Yeah, well, I, I heard somewhere just a little while ago that they're finding traces of some of these chemicals in the water in Cincinnati, well, in the Ohio there River. You go, when, when you say that, John, and I've seen those reports, um, and, and the Ohio EPA has confirmed that there are traces of this as far south as Cincinnati. The question is, what level of risk right, people right. are associated with that? I don't know the answer to that. But, John, I would be very concerned. Is there any kind of a cover-up going on, Michael, do you think? There's well, it's hard to say. I would say this, that the governor has not been transparent to the degree that I think he should be in identifying the decision-making that he went through uh, to do the controlled burn. There's more to be found there. Also, I think it is more than curious that a reporter from News Nation... That was my next uh, question, yep. At the, at the press conference on February 8th, was uh, arrested for being too loud. I don't know. You've been to a lot of press conferences. Reporters tend to get a little bit loud. As far as I know, it is not a viola- It is a violation of the First Amendment to arrest a reporter for well, being too loud. Yeah, it's funny you bring conference. that up, and I'm, I'm getting tight on time here, Michael, but I saw that story, and I saw the guy being removed, and, and I, the first thing I thought was, there, I, I worked in TV for a long time, and I knew a lot of people who thought that they were allowed to talk as loudly as they wanted during a press conference because they're on TV and you're not. And I'm, right. I'm, I'm wondering of how much of that was involved. I think that'll come out, too. Well, there I may be some of that, but loud, loud talking at a press conference by a reporter, I think the First Amendment allows that. Eh, if, if, not if you're interrupting the governor and he, if people, you're, you know, you're, you gotta, there's a way to do it and be quiet. And you can't, I, yeah. I don't know, that, that's another issue, but hey. We'll uh, see how the Attorney General of Ohio is looking into that. Yeah. Hey, uh, John, it is a delight to make your acquaintance, and uh, thank you so much for asking me to come on and talk about this. 
I'm going to go right from the, from this to Steve Bannon's war room. Oh, good for you. Seconds. Very good. Michael Patrick Leahy, the editor-in-chief of the Ohio Star. Thanks. Thank you, John. Appreciate okay, it. we'll be right back. SRN News. I'm John Scott. This just in, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California announcing she will not seek re-election in 2024, signaling an end to a political career spanning six decades. Speaking at the National Association of Counties meeting in Washington, President Biden took note of Monday night's deadly shooting spree at Michigan State University. Our hearts are with the students and the families of Michigan State University. Yes. Last night, I spoke with Governor Whitmer, and uh, the FBI and additional federal law enforcement are on the ground assisting the state and local folks. It all started around 8.30 p.m. local time when the 43-year-old gunman, Anthony McRae, opened fire. The search ended roughly three hours later when McRae fatally shot himself in a confrontation with the police. That happened miles from campus. This is SRN News. From the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes Jesus Revolution. If you look a little deeper, if you look with love, you'll see an entire generation searching for all the right things, just in all the wrong places. Based on a true revolution. You're going to need a bigger church. Jesus Revolution. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. See it early February 22nd. In theaters everywhere beginning February 24th. Go to JesusRevolution.movie. Every day we hear news about violent assaults, carjackings, and other acts of crime spiraling across the United States. Washington's answer is to confiscate your guns, but a new book from Regnery offers hope for a better solution. Professional firearms instructor and veteran gun store owner Larry Correa's new book, In Defense of the Second Amendment, pulls back the curtain on Washington's gun-grabbing agenda and how you can protect your rights as well as your family. Yet, In Defense of the Second Amendment, new from Regnery, available at Amazon.com. Dennis Prager struggles with the State of the Union. I have to admit, in having done this now for about 30 years, analyzing the speeches of presidents, Democrat and Republican, this speech was the most difficult because it had nothing in it. There's nothing to analyze. This country is in such terrible shape. The Dennis Prager Show, weekdays at noon, right before Sebastian Gorka at 3 on AM 1250. The answer. Hey, John Steigerwald here for Johnny and Jesse Samick, my friends over at Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. When disaster strikes your home or business, demand the yellow van. Fire, water, or mold, Service Master's technicians are trained and equipped to get you back to normal fast. Even when dealing with insurance, you have a choice who repairs and cleans up the mess. Make sure you demand the yellow van. Call Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand the yellow van. Do you have a loved one entering a nursing home? There's a lot at stake. This is Jay Hagerman of Abernathy and Hagerman. Depending on your family's long-term care goals, there are important decisions that should be made before a facility is needed. Talk to a qualified legal professional today. At Abernathy and Hagerman, we can help your family navigate the complicated Medicaid rules so that you can properly save some or all of your life savings from a long-term care crisis. Before you apply, contact Abernathy and Hagerman at a-h.law. From the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes Jesus Revolution. If you look a little deeper, if you look with love, you'll see an entire generation searching for all the right things, just in all the wrong places. Based on a true revolution. You're going to need a bigger church. Jesus Revolution. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. See it early February 22nd. Be in theaters everywhere beginning February 24th. Go to JesusRevolution.movie. AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The answer. WPGP Pittsburgh. W223CS Pittsburgh. A division of Salem Media Group. Listen on the answer mobile app, smart speakers, tune in, iHeart, or Odyssey. AM 1250. The answer. Weather. It's going to be cloudy with a shower in spots late tonight, the low 47. Mostly sunny, breezy tomorrow. Enjoy it. It's going to feel more like spring than winter, my friend. The high tomorrow is 73. Partly cloudy, mild tomorrow night, low 45. Windy on Thursday with periods of rain, even a thunder boomer coming our way, high 62. With AccuWeather, I'm Ruth O'Brien. You can go to AccuWeather.com for more. 
This is the John Stackerwalt Show on AM 1250 and FM 92.5. The answer. Now, we told you in the opening of the show that Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky has introduced a bill to eliminate the Department of Education. And if you've been paying any attention to what's been going on in schools lately, you probably think it's a good idea. But it's been proposed lots of times over the years. Nothing seems to ever happen. Jonathan Butcher is a fellow for education at the Heritage Foundation, and he joins us now. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show again. appreciate it. Great to be with you. So uh, the department was formed by Jimmy Carter in 1980, and Ronald Reagan started talking about how much he didn't like it about, I don't know, 20 minutes after he was inaugurated. Uh, here we are 43 years later. Why should anybody respect or expect, I should say, uh, anything to happen this time? Well, I think there's been a change after COVID. I mean, I think that families have expressed their dissatisfaction with assigned district schools. I mean, they've done so in surveys, but also by taking their children elsewhere. I mean, look, there have been reports from around the country of hundreds of thousands of kids who now districts can't track. They can't find them. They either lost them during the pandemic or their parents have moved them elsewhere. And this is on top of the more than 1 million children that we know of who have left the public school system over the course of 2021, 2022. So I think there's been a real serious shift here in the way that Americans view now uh, the education system that is overseen by this agency. Uh, the, the, as I mentioned, the Heritage Foundation has a, a plan that, um, well, I, I didn't mention that, but I'm mentioning it now. The, the Heritage Foundation has an official plan to uh, 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 for for how to get rid of the Department of Education. But I'm looking at the conclusion of that plan. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago, and it says, quote, the Department of Education was not and is not a child of carefully reasoned policy or pressing national need. It was the product of politics and is an instrument of interest group political power. That sums it up pretty well. Can You, you want to break that down a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, you can take as an example what happened after President Biden was inaugurated, right? Both of the heads of the teachers unions, the largest teachers unions in the U.S., the NEA and the AFT, were in the White House for a photo op, right? Yeah. And then following that, during COVID, as there were reports from this, you know, from investigators who found that the CDC had effectively colluded with the teachers unions about how to structure their reopening plans to make it as difficult as possible for some schools to reopen. So, I mean, clearly it is, you know, just beset, I think, by special interests, um, as agencies tend to be, right? And that makes it, frankly, unremarkable. Uh, I think it actually would be more remarkable if the agency had kept itself free from that. Um, so, again, I think in response, what we need to be doing, and our, our report breaks this down, is there are some very practical ways that we can move certain responsibilities out of this agency and to other departments where they would be better suited. So, for example, things like testing and keeping track of what we what is known as the nation's report card would be something that could be overseen by um, the Census Bureau. We have responsibilities for civil rights protections that should move to the Department of Justice. So there are some various things here where, you know, we're not, it would be irresponsible to simply say, well, let's just, you know, lock the door and walk away. What we need to do is remember the 50 million kids, right, who are, you know, overseen or part of the schools that the U.S. Department of Education touches. So uh, I think there are ways that we can do this that are very sensible and uh, I think move responsibly to both protect children and taxpayer dollars. Yeah, looking at the history, which I looked at uh, as, you know, preceding, Talking to you, want to just make sure I had it right, um, and it, I, I get the feeling from reading up on it uh, that this was all about was well, as, as I mentioned, uh, not a child of carefully reasoned policy. It was the product of poli- politics and an instrument of interest group political power. That means unions. And back in uh, in the in 1976 or 77, Jimmy Carter was president. And that's the, he was the first. Was he the first president to start getting lots of money from the teachers' unions? Uh, I would doubt it. I suspect that the unions have been involved in politics even uh, predating that. And today, that is essentially what they are. Right? They are a ready-made interest group, and not just for education. They take positions on everything from abortion to um, uh, Palestine and Israel. To uh, I mean, there are 
not to mention gender ideology. I mean, there are all sorts of things outside of education or only, you know, slightly involved with education um, that unions take positions on. And, you know, I, I would just add here that, um, you know, the when we say that, that the department is, you know, has its hand in so much that schools do, I did a report a few years ago that found that some 40% of the salary money that uh, goes to state departments of education, so Pennsylvania Department of Education, uh, Delaware Department of Ed, South Carolina Department of Ed, et cetera, right? 40% of those salaries are covered by federal dollars. Washington is paying for the bureaucrats and administrators in state agencies that oversee state priorities in education. Now, how does that happen? Well, because much of what goes on in a state agency is just sort of a pass-through of federal money, right? They're overseeing federal programs. That's essentially what those agencies are set up to do. In fact, the seed money for those state agencies came from the federal government, right, to create what are known as SEAs, or state education agencies. So Title I, which is money for children in low-income areas, IDEA, money for children with special needs, all of that sort of oversight and flowing the money through it goes through these state agencies. I mean, they it becomes this sort of giant game of telephone, right, where $1 yeah. is handed to somebody else. If only we could keep track of it that well. Sadly, it does not work that well at all. Why would it, how, I guess, or why did it um, get to the point where the federal government is involved in a state agency? Were the state agencies failing uh, so miserably that the federal government came to the rescue or... In other words, this, the, the Department of Education has only been in existence since 1980. Those state agencies, I'm guessing, were in existence long before that. How were they being funded then, and what happened that caused them to have to depend on the federal government? Well, there were a set of federal grant programs and different departments across um, the federal bureaucracy that were going to schools around the country. And so on the one hand, right, the claim was if we can centralize all of that and create a cabinet level agency that will, you know, take charge of all of this different funding, then that would sort of create a more um, efficient way to organize the, the federal oversight of various responsibilities when it came to K-12. But the truth is that once you centralize it, you just create another bureaucracy that is beset by interest groups and has its own interests over what's happening. So that's why, you know, we have requirements for grades three through eight to take certain tests every year, right? That comes from the federal government. We have requirements for schools to fill out uh, certain surveys every year, reporting on school activities. Um, I mean, look, in 2014, and this is perhaps one of the most egregious examples of recent, you know, recent memory, right? Washington put out a dear colleague letter saying that schools could not discipline children from minority ethnicities at higher rates than other children. Otherwise, the Office of Civil Rights would come and investigate and potentially withhold federal money. So now you have Washington essentially controlling school discipline policy, which is a very, very specific and case-by-case issue handled at the school level. That's, that's a great example, but that's, I'm guessing that that was not necessarily envisioned by Jimmy Carter or Walter Mondale or anybody else who was in position of power back when this uh, uh, cabinet uh, was this this the department had been formed was formed. Well, it's hard to know what they were thinking, but I can tell you that you know this is sort of the um, you know the administrator's dream, right? Let's create this big agency where everything will work just like clockwork, right? Money will be distributed on time. Uh, money will be carefully overseen. Uh, we'll have a bureaucracy in Washington filled with, quote, experts who will know how to handle every situation that comes up. And, of course, we know that's not true. And we know it's not true because now we have, you know, school districts across the U.S. where Washington can't even keep track of how much money is being spent after uh, COVID, right? All the COVID money that came from the federal government during that time. I mean, there's some 130, 150 billion of the 200 billion that hasn't been spent yet. Um, we have an Office of Inspector General that investigates how federal money is misused. And that happens across the board, right? Everything from higher education and the misuse of, you know, Pell Grants and, um, you know, funding for, uh, uh, you know, federal loans to uh, individual schools that misuse Title I money or misuse uh, money for school lunches. So, you know, the efficiencies are not there because it is so centralized. 
Yeah, we're talking to Jonathan Butcher. He's a fellow for education at the Heritage Foundation, which has an official plan out there to uh, eliminate – well, I guess it would be actually eliminating the Department of Education and at least have folding it into other agencies. Um, but uh, as I said, back in 1966, Jimmy Carter proposed a lot of things and probably made a lot of promises. How many of those were fulfilled? What, what was he promising or what were they promising back when they did this? And how much of it has come true, I guess, is the question. Well, part of it was to focus on children from low-income backgrounds, right? The biggest pot of federal money for K-12 schools is in Title I of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, okay, the biggest federal law. And the goal here was to say we'll have now this federal agency that will make sure that money goes to children who come from low-income backgrounds so that we can improve their student performance. Well, lesson number one is that more money doesn't change student performance, and there is uh, loads of research to back this up. And then secondly, the fact is that the achievement gap between children from different income levels is the same today that it was 50 years ago. Research finds that the gap between children from upper income homes, so the top 10 percentile of the income scale, and the bottom 10% is about the same as it was 50 years ago. So it has not succeeded in what was really its main task. Yeah, and, and it, again, it's as you said, there's no correlation between the amount of money being spent per student and how they're doing in school. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. I mean, today we're, you know, the highest, you know, uh, spending the highest amount, even after adjusting for inflation, um, and that amount only increased during COVID when Washington sent just a, I mean, a a mind-boggling amount. I mean, $190 billion um, over the course of several bills over two or three years. I mean, that is, um, considering that Washington, you know, know, think of it this way. I mean, Washington accounts for 10% of the money spent per child in local schools, 10%. Um, and so to spend in one year or over the course really of sort of two and a half years, right, about three times what they all over and on top of what they spend annually. I mean, it's just a, a mind boggling amount of money. Yeah. And they have a, the, the city that's been in the news lately, uh, Baltimore, I, I think it's 23 high schools that they have. They don't have one kid who tested uh, proficient in math for his grade, his or her grade level. 23 schools. That's f- and so you talk about a gap. There, sh- there should be some kind of a, a correlation between those test scores and graduation rates going down because you're not proving that you're able to, even, to get through to graduate, but the graduation numbers go up. Is, am I right? Even though the, the test well- scores go down. Yeah, well, sure. And look, this sadly is not new. I mean, this kind of thing does not happen overnight. Um, There was a report just about, I mean, I think it was a year ago, about how there were kids in Baltimore high schools with GPAs that barely registered on the scale. I mean, we're talking, you know, 1% or less in some cases. I mean, how, how can you enroll a child in high school and let them get in such a deep hole Uh, so close to graduation, right? I mean, how can you say that they could finish school with a GPA that low? I mean, the bottom line is, is that if the federal agency was built to help cases just like this, to make sure that we never got to this point where we have kids with, you know, uh, GPAs that are this low or schools that don't have anyone proficient in math or reading, um, then the agency has failed and we should be demanding Right, that Washington moved very quickly to uh, remove the cabinet-level status of this agency, and uh, we should be uh, really, on the state level in particular, turning the responsibilities over to parents so they can decide how and where their children learn. At what point, um, Jonathan, does it become fraud to to describe something as a um, as a as as a means of education and have it? proven by the numbers and the inability of kids to produce the, the, the test scores that show they're getting anything out of it, how can you pass something off as a uh, an educational system when nobody's getting educated? Yeah, and, and it's the system just wasn't built to do this. It was not built to help students gain ground. It was essentially built for, you know, originally, okay, the idea of assimilation, right? Because we had so many immigrants coming into the United States about, you know, a little more than 100 years ago when the system as we know it sort of began to take shape. 
And so at first it was assimilation. Then it became um, preparing students for the workforce. And, um, you know, now it is not even sure what it is, right? I mean, with the prevalence of DEI programs and uh, radical gender theory being taught in schools, it's really not clear exactly what the purpose is. But I can tell you that, um, you know, public schools simply are not equipped to help students gain ground. They're, they can deliver the same amount of material to a group of students uh, really with no guarantee that the students will um, understand it and a- attain proficiency with it. So, you know, we, we need a system now that helps students catch up, right, to get to where they need to be that uh, is considered on grade level. And the system that we have built right now is just not equipped to do that. And uh, incidentally, the, they, they wanted to have this Department of Education to take care of the lower income uh, kids, families, and that was what the war on poverty was supposed to take care of, which was declared in 1965 or 64. So they, it went 16 years, and for some reason, there was still poverty after the war on poverty and the trillions of dollars they spent, which you know another colossal failure by the federal government, that which led to what we're talking about now, which is another colossal failure, correct? Well, and boy, it's been a long time with that war on poverty because many of those programs are still in place, yeah. including things like the Higher Education Act and um, Head Start, which is the federal program for preschool, right? All of which are programs that uh, have also been ineffective. I mean, what is the other big story in education right now? It's the fact that we have some $1.7 trillion right, in outstanding student loan debt um, that Washington really has no solutions of how to resolve, um, as well as the fact that Head Start, uh, longitudinal research has shown that Head Start has been a failure to prepare kids for elementary school. Um, so, and again, these are federal initiatives, right? I mean, these are things that Washington started with the effort of helping uh, families from low-income areas. And again, after, you know, what are we on now? In 60-some years, uh, we have to be able to say it's, it has not worked, and uh, the American people deserve something better. Ninety. Per, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw that 90% of the student loans that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want to eradicate and forgive, uh, are it's money coming from the, uh, I'm talking about loans for college, they come from the government, federal government. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as of uh, President Obama's administration, the, uh, Washington effectively consumed the student loan market. And so 90 plus percent of all student loans are underwritten by Washington. There is a very, very small private loan market out there today. So when you control the market, uh, when you have a monopoly over it, you can set the rules. Uh, you determine how students are have to operate under that system. And sadly for the American taxpayer today, who, by the way, uh, more than 60% of Americans have not completed a four-year degree, right? They don't have a bachelor's degree. So we're now on the hook for what Biden is proposing when he's saying we're going to, quote, forgive student loans. Yeah, typical government uh, stupidity. I got about a minute left uh, uh, with Jonathan Butcher of the Heritage Foundation. He's an education fellow. Um, I got about a minute left. What does this do for the school choice uh program or 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 the the future of school choice when you talk about what happens at the state level uh and they if they can no longer if if they have fewer students that they are involved with and does that give them maybe uh, make it easier for them to not take federal money well so the private school choice programs that are operating around the US Arizona Florida uh places like Georgia Pennsylvania has a tax credit scholarship they operate without federal money um, so they are already, right, not under that umbrella. Uh, there are some almost two dozen studies that show that the children who remain behind in public schools are not harmed by private school choice options. So it's a win-win for families. Well, let's uh, hope it happens. The Republicans are talking about it again. Let's see if they do anything. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay, that's Jonathan Butcher of the Heritage Foundation. I'll be right back. If you 
you have unfiled taxes or are in debt to the IRS, this is important news. The IRS just rolled out a new program to help struggling taxpayers more easily resolve their tax problems. It's called the Taxpayer Relief Initiative, and it opens up powerful new options for people looking to get back on the right track with the IRS. And no one knows this program like the professionals at Optima Tax Relief, America's most trusted tax resolution company. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debt for their clients and have the expertise and experience to help you. One easy call to Optima can start the process, helping to put an end to your worries of wage garnishment, asset seizure, and other aggressive IRS actions. Make today the beginning of your fresh start with the IRS. Call the experts at Optima Tax Relief now for your free confidential consultation. Call 800-354-2840. 800-354-2840. 800-354-2840. Optima Tax Relief. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. The John Steigerwall Show, AM 1250, The Answer. The great Walter Williams, who died a couple of years ago uh, and was one of my favorite uh, columnists, uh, commentators, uh, he, did, he did tremendous work on education. He was the, he was a, an econo- head of the economics department at George Mason University for a long time. He wrote a column a couple of years ago, and I saw these numbers. The 2017 National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is the nation's report card, was released. And this is what he has in his this column that he wrote a few years ago. Only 30% of 12th graders tested, 37% tested proficient or better in reading, and only 25% did so in math. That's failure by any, by any measure. If you're trying to produce some level of success, and only 37% are showing some level of success, you failed. I don't know, you personally as a teacher didn't fail, but something failed, the system failed. Only 17% of black students, this is in the Nash, in the country, tested proficient or better in reading. 17%, 7% proficient in math. And, that, and then he says in high school levels, 12th grade, 63% are not proficient in reading, 75% are not in math and blacks. 75% of black students received high school diplomas attesting that they could read and compute at the 12th grade grade level. However, 83% could not read at that level and 93% could not do math. They still got diplomas. That's fraud and it stinks. John Steigerwald Show is a production of Salem Media Group and sponsored by Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand the Yellow Van. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.